0: Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrea White-Dad from Denver.
1: And I'm Val, a Black mom from North Carolina.
0: And this is There Goes the Neighborhood with Jada Dia. We have an amazing conversation to share today about gentrification with a young adult fiction author. And Val, I am really looking forward to sharing this conversation. There Goes the Neighborhood. It is a loaded phrase. What does it make you think?
1: So when I hear that phrase, I'm always thinking that it's someone who has been established in a neighborhood, who sees a newcomer who might not understand the neighborhood's culture or might be too loud or park their car (laughs) on the wrong part of the street. Just someone who doesn't actually belong. And and as I'm thinking about that, I think that person in my mind who says, there goes the neighborhood, also is a person I see is willing to fight for the neighborhood Mm. or to, to stay home for them. How about you? When you hear There Goes the Neighborhood, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I share all of those. And certainly prior to sharing the story that we're going to share today, the idea of There Goes the Neighborhood, in my mind, was associated with white people when a black person moves in. You know, Mm -hmm. there goes the neighborhood, the neighborhood is on its way down, and it's time for me to get out and head to the suburbs.
1: Yeah, of course, my, my first thought, unfortunately, was along racial lines. But, you know, now as a homeowner, I'm like... (laughs) looking out my window to make sure my neighborhood's not going anywhere (laughs) by whatever that means, right? So that's why I was trying to humanize a little bit the person that might have said that, but yours is probably much more honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I appreciate that because if if our guest today does anything, it is humanize the people who are involved in changing neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So we are joined by Jade Adia, wrote a young adult novel called There Goes a Neighborhood, The neighborhood that she is referring to is a neighborhood that is being gentrified in South L.A.
1: So And so we had an opportunity to not only chat with her about the book itself, but also her own personal experiences that really fed into the narrative in a really cool way.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's the first time we've had a fiction writer on the podcast. Obviously, like ties into so many of the themes that we talk about, but kind of taking a different approach to it. So we always try to start with some question about what is it that led you to do the work that you do with all of our guests? And this was a particularly interesting story, I think, of the ways that her own biography, her own life growing up, and then kind of the position she found herself in in the pandemic led to writing her first novel.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of our themes for the season is the power of storytelling. Yes. in the story that she tells, both of her life and in her novel, we see how her educational experiences have impacted her, yeah. how her, her family experiences have impacted her, and all of those come together for a story that we can connect to just on a human level.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and whether we're adults or or youth, you know, I think the, the book is, is YA. The characters in the book are 15. It's the summer between their freshman and sophomore year. But the themes that she she touches on, certainly about gentrification, but even more broadly about family, about community, about relationships, about change—all of these things feel very relevant to people of any age.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Summer between ninth and tenth grade.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating time, as as Jade points out. There's not a lot of YA that takes place in that kind of age range. Kids are usually older or younger. But as listeners will hear, the the plot of the story. Really, almost sort of requires kids being in that little transitional period where they're kind of old enough to know what's going on, but young enough to make some bad choices.
1: Yeah, we tried to ask questions that didn't lead to too many spoilers.
0: Yes, we hopefully did not give away anything major from the book, so you should get it and read it, and you should do that soon because "There Goes the Neighborhood" is the book club pick for integrated schools for the beginning of November. If you go to schools dot org slash book dash club. You can find out more information. The sessions are the first week of November. It's a really great time. Well-facilitated, small conversations. Come and join other people from all around the country to talk about this book, because it's really an incredible book.
1: And reading is always better when done with others, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. All right, should we take a listen to Jade?
1: Let's do it.
0: All right, here's our talk with Jade Abiela.
2: My name is Jada Dia. I'm the author of There Goes a Neighborhood, which is a young adult contemporary novel that came out in March of this year.
0: And tell us your your personal story a little bit, your background. You grew up in L.A. Yeah. You went to undergrad, you went to law school, and Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you find yourself writing a novel. (laughs) Yeah. Tell us about that story.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it was not a straightforward path. Like you said, like I was born and raised in LA and I I grew up in a neighborhood that although there goes a neighborhood is like completely fictional. And I keep insisting to all of my family and friends. I'm like, it's fake. I promise (laughs) I'm not talking about us, but I did grow up in a neighborhood that did have a similar vibe to the fictional neighborhood in the book, where it was a super interconnected neighborhood where I kind of got to grow up with All of my neighbors having open door policies where I would just like walk into someone's house and like have dinner and like someone's parent would pick us up and then we'll be like, okay, like let's pick up six other kids who are around here, which I didn't realize was even that unique or special until I got much older. And I realized, oh, not everyone has a neighborhood where they walk around, they see everyone who they know which Mm -hmm. even as a teenager can sometimes be super annoying or embarrassing where like you're trying to like do stuff with your friends and get into trouble but then like everyone's auntie is watching you so you can't (laughs) get away with anything
1: <laughs> I definitely had that experience yesterday. One of my younger neighbors, she was outstanding away from her home talking to a gentleman friend. And mm-hmm. I was like,
2: I can't. That sounds like exactly. It's the, the blessings and the curses of being in like a really tight-knit neighborhood. Yeah. So I did grow up in. In LA and had that experience. But though I was always a really active reader and I loved books, I was not at all a kid who wanted to be a writer or anything like that at all. It all came together much later. I went to college and I was studying like ethnicity and race and migration. So doing an ethnic studies program, which was really important to me at the time. And I think kind of looking back kind of laid the foundation for a lot of stuff that I write about now. But Mm -hmm. I was really steeped in these issues about like racial justice and policing and poverty in America, but not thinking about creative writing at all. And then I was working in schools for a while. I was doing some school-based social work and case management and had a... Amazing time working with the students, but I was working in a few, particularly like high need schools that had a lot of challenges with like meeting the needs of students, and also, unfortunately, like a lot of issues with like policing and surveillance of their students as well, which was difficult for me as a staff mm. who was not aligned with the way that these schools were treating the young people in those spaces. So Kind of coming out of that environment, I was like, I'm gonna go to law school, maybe that will help. And I was I got to law school and I was like, oh no, this is not what I want to do. It's a great path for a lot of people, but as soon as I got there, I think I felt that this was making me feel further from the people I cared about rather than being closer. So it was really just kind of in this period of just being like, Oh, I think I made a huge mistake going to law school and I want to have these conversations, but I don't want to have them in this way, in this very academic, sometimes like often like Mm. elitist way that like cuts people out of conversations rather than bringing them in. And then that plus a little pandemic, depression, quarantine stuff. And then I was like, I think I'm going to try to write a book. Mm -hmm. I think I have all these feelings. Wow. And that's kind of very loosely how it led to starting to write again.
1: Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yeah. I think
1: I just ate with my pandemic depression.
2: I <laughs> think I just ate. Yeah. Some snacks. <laughs> <Yeah>. I, know. <laughs> I know. We were all doing our best and trying to figure it out. And I really think that most of it was because during The pandemic during shutdown, I came back to my childhood home and I was quarantined with like my entire family, like with both of my sisters, my mom, my nephews, like my like my brother-in-law, all these people. We were all together. So I was back in my childhood home, bored, spending a ton of time with my family and then also looking at my childhood bookcase and just being like, all right, well, I guess I'll pick up a Goosebumps book. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is so fun. And it it actually made me enjoy reading again where I had been in a huge reading slump because in law school, I was like, if I have to read another case, Uh I'm going to lose my mind. I was like, this isn't interesting. I forgot Mm -hmm. that reading could be Mm -hmm. fun. And it was kind of like being trapped in my childhood bedroom, looking at these books and finally picking them up where I was like, Oh, this is something that's making me really happy. Maybe I should try writing something like this too. Beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful story.
1: I know.
0: It's, it's, such yeah. a, it's such a great journey, and then it leads to yeah. this incredible book. So tell us a little bit, the sort of you know 30,000-foot view of There Goes the Neighborhood, what happens in the book, and why you wrote it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So There Goes the Neighborhood uh, follows three best friends in a fictional neighborhood in South LA who, when one of the friend's families gets an eviction notice, come together to try to figure out how to keep their crew together. Their neighborhood is rapidly gentrifying and things are changing a lot. So they think of the horribly problematic (laughs) solution to start a fake gang to scare gentrifiers out of their neighborhood. And of course, that goes super awry and they really have to come to terms with what it means to be part of a community, like what change is like.
0: Yeah, it's such a great story. It's got so much in it. Yeah. So you're 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 stuck in your childhood bedroom, you're stuck in quarantine, and that sort yeah. of leads you to want to write again. What was the motivation to write this particular story?
2: Yeah, I mean it was a lot of it was just kind of motivated by thinking about like how Devoted I was to my friends when I was that age, and a lot of those relationships felt extremely place-based at that time. Like as a young kid in LA, where there's no public transportation, I don't have a car, so like many of my best friends were the people who lived like around the corner from me and down the street. My actual neighborhood where I grew up, it's very different from the ones that the kids are in because the kids in the book, their neighborhood's changing so much and there's a lot of displacement. Whereas for me, it kind of wasn't until I went away to college and came back that I really started to notice how fast my neighborhood was changing. So I would maybe come home once a year. Mm -hmm. So during those four years, I was away and I'd come back and I'd be like, wait, where's this person? They're like, oh, they're gone. I was like, oh, okay. And Mm -hmm. I go away and I come back and be like, what happened to this restaurant? And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's gone. Going away and coming back during those years is what I really... I really felt it changing in a really that accelerated way. And yeah, so the Mm -hmm. book was really just kind of thinking about what if I was 15 when I was seeing my neighbor change this fast and the anxiety and the fear that I would have about losing a support system, especially as someone that myself and my family relied on my neighbors a lot, just being so afraid of what that could look like and and, yeah, me and my friends were also, like, we were so weird and crazy. Like, we would think of something super <laughs> insane like this to do. <laughs> a
0: fake gang. <laughs> yeah.
2: Because the kids in the book, they're all so nerdy. And they are kind of in this unique place where they understand the history of their neighborhood enough to know that this is a threat. But they're also just removed enough to not really understand, like, the emotional and political ramifications of what they're doing. So it kind of creates the perfect conditions for these well-intentioned kids who've never done anything bad before in their life to think of truly the worst plan possible. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: I mean, yeah, the plan wouldn't work if they were 12
2: Mm -hmm. And it probably
0: wouldn't work if they were 18 or 19, but they're sort of like in this sweet spot of 15, 16 years old where it's like, yeah, they have enough context to recognize that the white people who are coming into their neighborhood are scared of mm-hmm. you know gunshots and are scared of gang activity and like oh mm-hmm. this could be our way in but but young enough to to think that it might be a good idea
2: yeah yeah exactly i like had some old journals from high school which were like humiliating to read but again i was back nice. at home so i had access to them and i was like oh my god the book takes place over the course of one month in the summer between the kids freshman and sophomore year of high school and i also remember that just being like the most like frustrating time because like you finish one year of high school. So now everyone thinks that you're a little bit older, but like, you can't really drive yet. And like, no one's really that cool yet. Mm. So I think it also makes sense that, you know, that that's a really awkward summer that there's also not a ton of YA books that take place during that time. Usually YA is a little bit older where they're always 16 or 17. But for this one, I was like, I think they should be younger. And yeah, there's, there's, I think there's need for more books about that age and like those early high school years as well.
0: Yeah.
1: And you, you started to answer this a little bit, Jade, with your answer about looking back at your old journals, how have you been able to develop the sense of empathy for this age group? Mm -hmm. Like, how does it feel so fresh to you that you can to speak so authentically with their voice?
2: I think, Part of it was remembering how I felt at that time, like through journals or even just reflecting. So the main character of the book, her name is Rhea. While we're very different people, we do have a lot in common. And one of them is that Rhea is like deeply, deeply afraid of change. And that's something that I remember feeling acutely at that age, where I Mm. had friends that I had a really tight-knit friend group, but I was the one that was kind of like, kind of trying to hold on to our childhood in a lot of ways like I I remember feeling like everyone around me was changing a lot faster than I was and that was really difficult for me at that age so I think when I was writing Ria from her perspective I was able to just remember that and and see how that theme could ripple out in the book where her childhood best friend is ha you know saying that he may or may not have some feelings for her, and she doesn't know how to feel about that. Mm -hmm. And then there's new kids to the neighborhood. So her friend group's changing, and it's also expanding another way. She's going through changes at home with her family. She's going through changes with herself, just being 15 at that, like, cusp age. And then on top of that, like, her neighborhood's changing, and it just all feels so overwhelming. I can Mm. remember, even though I wasn't dealing with exactly the same stuff, like, that feeling of just wanting to, like...
1: Mm-hmm. ground
2: down somewhere and not get like swept up in all the changes mm. so I think just even though I was writing from a younger perspective I think like even for us as adults like we can still still feel that feeling through like oh my god like I I can't believe things are going this fast so mm-hmm. my writing was kind of focused on those big feelings that we all still experience and just kind of remembering like how intense it felt when you were younger.
1: I, I can't even tell you how how super helpful that is in thinking about my own experience. My son, he, he never asked for anything. But when we moved into this house, mm-hmm. um, he was just finishing middle school and going into high school. And he was like, can mm-hmm. we move into a neighborhood where I can go to the same school as the friends that I made in mm-hmm. middle school? Because there had been so much change. Like we moved to a new state yeah. in 2020 and so new school and it was virtual and then it was face to face, but with masks yeah. and, and he, he has never like really asked me for anything like, you know, like he yes, asked for a PS5, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but he's never asked me for anything like, and he said when we were driving around looking for houses outside of the neighborhood that we eventually landed in, he said, I'm tired of making new friends. And um, yeah, I know. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Just
1: until you just said that, I I forgot how much that type of change we consider young people to be super resilient and not always impacted by these changes as much as adults are. And so thank you. Thank you for that.
2: Yeah, no. and, And thank you for sharing that too. I think one of the fun things with YA books. I do think it is a place where adults can get a lot of enjoyment from reading these books too. Young people are my primary demographic, and I love talking to teenagers who like to read and who've read my book and stuff. But I've had lots of really interesting conversations with friends who are parents, my sister, who also is a parent now and stuff, and just thinking about all the stuff that comes up in all of us when we remember all of like the big feelings of, of different ages in our life and stuff.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. Certainly, you know, one of the big themes of the book is gentrification. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is like a yes and question, but did you set out to write about gentrification and then figure the best way to do it is kind of in this fictional LA neighborhood, following these friends around? Because the like visceral feeling of the neighborhood is so. Present in the book. Like, even though it's a fictional neighborhood, I feel like I was walking through it. I could smell it. I could feel it. It made me hungry. I wanted to, like, (laughs) eat the food that's in the book. You could, like, feel the pace of the book. The energy of the neighborhood was, like, so real and present. Did you want to write, like, a, a coming of age found family book and happen to set it in a place? experiencing gentrification or was it like I'm going to write about gentrification and this is the best vehicle to do that?
2: Yeah, that, that's such a good question. And thank you. I'm so glad that the book made you hungry. That's like my favorite thing someone said about the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of food and a lot of just like the the coziness of what makes neighborhoods unique in it. So that makes me so happy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was kind of more of the, of the first thing you said, where for me, I knew I wanted to write a book about gentrification. So that's where I started. But I think the other important context for the time I started writing this book was it was the summer of 2020. So it was right in the thick of like the George Floyd uprisings and all of the stuff that was happening in the country at that time. So I had also been spending a lot of time being like out in the community and like attending these different like vigils and protests and events and stuff. And one of the things that continued to like strike me every time I went to these events was like the young people there like the teenagers that were at these events were bringing such like a different energy to the space than what Mm. all the adults were and in a way that was really stunning to me where there were like there was one in, in particular that I was thinking about a lot where there was like a group of teenagers who brought like a Bluetooth speaker and were like playing music and like people were dancing during it. But like this was also in the context of this like extremely painful moment. And I thought that was so incredible and like really moving to just see the ways in which like Gen Z and Gen Alpha were just showing up in these spaces, like bringing something completely fresh So these things were kind of happening like side by side in my mind where I was like, okay, I know I want to start trying to write again. I've been thinking about gentrification a lot, having moved back to LA after having not been there for a while. So that was on my mind. And then seeing kind of this like it felt very subversive the way that these young people were like showing up at these protests. And so that was on my mind a lot thinking Mm. about what would it look like to capture that sort of perspective and energy and also like creativity when like tackling difficult issues. Yeah. I guess I was just thinking about the importance of accessibility because like I said, I was frustrated in law school and how inaccessible it felt and these mm. protest spaces that were like multicultural, multilingual, like um, people of all ages felt kind of like the antithesis to like me being trapped in my zoom classroom, talking about these things and, in half in Latin. <laughs> well, I was like, no one even speaks Latin anymore. Why are we doing this? So, so, um, so yeah, <laughs> right. just thinking about accessibility led to being like, Oh, why would make sense? This would be a way to prioritize a fast paced story that, brings as many people to the table as possible and centers young people. So, so yeah, I kind of started building it out that way. I don't even know exactly what made me think of the crazy fake gang thing, but, but I do remember thinking a lot about how funny all the kids at the protest were that I met. Mm. Then the challenges became like, how can I make this as fun as possible while also being hopefully like very nuanced and having different perspectives on the issue and not, having anything just be like a clear black or white answer because as you guys know as well like teenagers are too smart for that like no one wants to hear you like it has to be this way or has to be that way A, a very gray area book about gentrification felt natural once i was thinking about all those things I love, I love
0: that you tapped on on the joy piece as well because I, mean, I think you know, we we've talked about these sort of heavy themes that run throughout the book of gentrification, of displacement, of mm-hmm. you know the loss of community and those sorts of things. But there are moments like they are definitely like the the scene in the bathroom at Dante's funeral, like mm. broke me. <laughs> there are definitely yeah. deeply touching moments, but there's so much joy and life and humor in the book as well.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that that was definitely like one of my biggest goals with the book where I decided that if I wanted to try to write this book, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to paint a picture of a neighbor that's like emphasizing trauma or a narrative that feels like it's weighing kids down. I think we have like Mm. enough of those types of stories that kind of like weigh kids down, especially when there's Young black and brown people in the story. And th- those stories are important as well, but like there are a lot of books that are about sad black girls. When I think about gentrification, there's so many aspects of it that, you know, deeply trouble me. But like the one that feels most personal to me is that it's like gentrification is this systemic attempt to resegregate neighborhoods and scatter people. When these people are separated, like what we're losing are these like, really important social ties and social capital that, like, makes people feel safe Mm. and makes people feel comfortable and allows people to, like, live, like, the best version of their life. Like, I, I truly think that there's a tremendous human cost to gentrification that goes beyond, like, the economic cost of it as well. And I think in order to tell a story that maybe for people who haven't experienced gentrification firsthand or they've experienced it, but like from the perspective of someone who is gentrifying a neighborhood and is looking to try to understand or develop empathy about the issue. I think like the best way to tell that story is like show a neighborhood that is like so deeply worth protecting. And like the people in it, like love being there and they like yes. love their friend groups. And like the, the love of it all has to be the core of this story because that's, that's what's at stake. So I really wanted to try to balance writing about the heavy stuff, but like continually emphasizing, like there's a reason why Rhea feels so strongly about protecting her neighborhood. And it's because it's like, a really wonderful way to live and that's something that all of us should be thinking about when talking about these issues where it's like it's it's people and relationships at the core of it. So yes. yeah, it just felt yeah. important to try to make the book feel fun. So like you said where you were like I could feel myself walking around this neighborhood. I'm like, yeah, like that's how I want people to feel because that's how I feel about where I grew up and that's how a lot of people feel about their neighborhoods and especially the ways in which gentrification can create these very like corporate, socially isolated styles of living where people don't really talk to each other that much anymore. Or there's a lot of the same types of stores and there's like a reduction in diversity. But I want to show a book that shows like, or there is another way to be a part of a city and that's nice and worth, you know, worth protecting as well.
0: I hadn't thought of it in those terms until you just said that. But in my mind, when I think of a neglected part of a city, a city that has been disinvested in where you would imagine gentrification to happen, mm-hmm. you think of the harms that that kind of place can cause. Mm-hmm. And so, in yeah, in my mind, that is a place that is weighing down on the people that are there. Mm-hmm. But you read your story and and that like clearly the only thing that is like keeping that community alive and afloat is the community itself. Mm-hmm. It, the, the community does such a job of uplifting everybody who's there, of supporting everybody, of keeping everybody sort of on their feet. Such a huge, wide diversity of people mm-hmm. all being supported and, and upheld by that community. You know, there's like a simple story mm-hmm. about gentrification, which is like it's urban renewal. It's blight. It's, you know, neglected communities that mm-hmm. need investment. And so we're going to bring in the investment. And so mm-hmm. instead of, you know, $200,000 rundown houses, we're going to have million dollar condos and that is clearly progress and good. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, our listeners are probably willing to dismiss that version.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I think there's also a story about gentrification, which is like it is unequivocally bad that change is bad. And I think this is like where Rhea starts the, the book, right? Is like mm-hmm. nothing can change. Everything okay. needs to stay exactly the same. Mm-hmm. This kid who I've been friends with for my whole life now wants to hold my hand. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> this is, <I'm>, everything <laughs> needs to stop. This is too much. Everything should stay exactly the same. Yeah. And, and that's like obviously not a sustainable way into the future either. And she sort of comes to this acceptance mm-hmm. that there does need to be some change. There do need to maybe their friend group can grow. Right. Maybe that doesn't mean that everything is going away. Right. Is is there some kind of theme around the change of a neighborhood that mm-hmm. that kind of you know mimics Ria's journey over the book?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, there's a couple different ideas of not necessarily solutions, but just like ways forward that are proposed throughout the book. Um, because one of the other things I want to make sure is it's even people in Ria's neighborhood completely disagree about gentrification. There are some right. people that are like the black homeowner. I want to see it increase my property value. And then there's other people that are of the perspective where they're just like, if it's not for everyone, that's for no one. There's other people that are talking about the role of violence in neighborhoods and, and even though interestingly enough, like there's been a lot of studies that gentrifying neighborhoods often increase gun violence because it creates a high stress environment. And like a lot of these social disruptions can actually exacerbate certain issues. So so I think that's also lost in conversation mm-hmm. about gentrification sometimes, where if we're thinking about like how to best support different communities and having real like conscious local approaches to doing that. Part of it is like making sure that like people feel safe and protected in their neighborhood. So when I think about like some takeaways for young people, I like to try to talk to them about the importance of like place-based stuff because I think that one of the themes of the book and Ria is like an extremely disillusioned young person where she's like, I can't vote, and even if I could vote, I don't know what my vote would do. I've watched all of these protests, and I don't feel like the moment carried on further than you know these protests so one of her mentors in the neighborhood is organizing a protest ria is kind of like i don't even really want to go i don't see the point what's of that it gonna do? yeah what's that going to do yeah. and i think that that disillusionment is extremely valid especially now like in this post pandemic like young people have gone through a lot <laughs> in their in their early years but i do think that being rooted in your local community does provide a lot of opportunities for political resistance. Mutual aid is talked about in the book, which is this you know, the idea that if you know your neighbors and you're part of an internet connected community. That's one way that you can create social safeguards like outside of a political system, outside of relying on the state. And then there's also Mm -hmm. talk about like the importance of being involved like in your literal city, county government, you can do so much at the local level Mm -hmm. and you don't have to want to be president. You know, you can be upset with like what's happening on a national scale, but if you're really thinking about like your day-to-day life and how government interacts with it, like looking extremely local, has a lot of opportunities, so I also hope that young people yeah. s- really take that seriously and be like, "Oh, like you actually can be involved in politics at mm-hmm. these levels."
1: You know, last season we spent a lot of time uh, making connections about action items for for listeners, and you just gave us a thousand. So, oh uh, <laughs> so thank you. My follow up question was one of our our themes for the season this year is about perseverance and Mm. sustaining like these efforts to enact change. What can readers learn from your characters about that?
2: Mm. I love the theme of perseverance. It's funny because in this book, there's multiple points where you're looking at what the friend group is doing and you're like, please give up. You're like, this is going too far. <laughs> so there <laughs> there are points where you're like, stop. You're like begging them. Like, stop persevering. Exactly. Stop persevering. I love it. Um, but then there's also obviously like you you you're rooting for them and you want them to win and stuff. And I think for young people On the topic of perseverance, just thinking about the importance of like remaining open-minded and your disillusionment is valid, but open-mindedness like is your skill. And even though the kids in the book, like they, they start off with an idea that's insane, but you know, by the end of the book, like they're all able to change for the better and have more honest conversations with like their parents, their friends, their neighbors, because there is this willingness to like change their mind. Perseverance is extremely important, but I feel how tired and fatigued a lot of young people feel. And so that's, that's hard sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I really do feel you where it is like very hard. And you feel like you're inheriting like police brutality, there's climate change, like there's all of these things that are on their plate. Yeah. But change is constant and it's really just a matter of like how you as an individual can choose to, you know, be a part of change and positive ways that are positive for you, positive for the people you care about. So, so, yeah, I don't know.
0: One of our, one of our other themes for the season is the importance of public schools. And. The school in the neighborhood is Bayrex Charter School. I wonder if you can tell us about Bayrex Charter School and how that features into the book.
2: Ah, yes. The reason why I wanted to have the kids attend a charter school is because I do think that there's a lot of complicated politics around charter schools, and specifically charter schools in Black and Brown neighborhoods. And I think it's important to look at the flow of money in neighborhoods, especially when people are claiming to support young people and and their families and the people around them. And I think, unfortunately, though not the case everywhere, schools are another place where sometimes exploitation can happen. A lot of people try to make money off of poor communities and Black communities and brown communities, and I think that schools aren't exempt from that. In my own education, I've been to a variety of schools. I went to public schools. I went to private schools. I am someone that truly does believe in public schools and the importance to public schools just as community hubs, but also as aspirationally, hopefully at least places where there's at least some accountability in terms of how money is spent. So yeah, I wanted to talk about charter schools because I wanted to just show that nothing's easy like the the people in the book involved with the charter school they're also people of color and I think that's a complicated issue with this book I didn't want to just be like all of the black characters are heroes and all the brown characters are great and then all the white people were evil whereas like that's not how it is it's not like it's not that simple and I think when we look at institutions like Schools and a lot of nonprofits, you can really start to see all of these things complicated about like money, power, exploitation, and the ways that people can sometimes spin a really good tail to say that they're really helping people. But if the people who are in charge don't actually reflect the community that they're serving, right. that gap can just create so many issues. So yeah, so I was like, I'm going to put a problematic charter school in the (laughs) book. Why not?
0: Yeah. It speaks to me as well as like the promise that the folks pushing gentrification make is like, we're going to make everything better. Just mm-hmm. trust us. Let us come in and we will make things better. We've mm-hmm. got this new restaurant that's even better than your old restaurant. So it doesn't matter that, you know, that person who's owned that restaurant for three generations is displaced because look at our new and the the new taco restaurant that comes into your neighborhood where the
2: mm-hmm. only salsa
0: they have is pico de gallo. Yeah. It's like <laughs> a beautiful example of this. Like we've got it. Trust us. Trust us. We've yeah. got it. And I think what you said is exactly right. It's like, who is in charge of that? Right. Who is leading that? And if it's not somebody from the community, if it's not somebody who knows knows the community, right. it's not somebody who's rooted in the community, then mm-hmm. then they're likely to miss regardless of what their intentions are. And obviously mm-hmm. in, in the book, we, we don't need to give it any way, but like t- intentions are not always pure <laughs> in, the, right. in the best of circumstances. But even when intentions are really good, you still end up missing if you're not rooted in community, if you're not you know, in relationship with the people who are most impacted.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that it, it also goes to how You know, in America, we have this culture of holding up, like, the disruptors, like, in tech and and finance stuff. The the archetype of the disruptor is kind of, like, the hero, the aspirational, like, the wonder kid of capitalism. But it's really just, like,
1: Mm. I
2: really think that we should deeply question this concept of, like, disruption equals good. Disruption equals the solution because... progress. Yeah, I don't think that that's how... Like we were saying, like change is natural. Innovation is important, but for systems to be in place that are set up to favor people who identify as disruptors over favoring people who are actually part of communities, it's super problematic. I think it's really, I think it's really scary, and I think the kids in the book kind of recognize that, where they're like. They're kind of looking at these these people and the, the ways that they're talking about their neighborhoods, the ways that the people at the school are like, oh, we're trying to get special funding, so we need you guys to pose for this thing. Like, the, like, the young people are really aware that, like, right. you guys, there's something that doesn't feel good about this. And, and the story definitely ends up validating their hunch about that, where, yeah, sometimes these people right. that are coming from outside and saying... The perfect things. Um, it's not going to end up being the perfect solution
0: for sure, right? Yeah. Who Who's the book for? And I've I've seen elsewhere that you've talked about that you didn't see great representation of yourself in YA books. That you didn't like find yourself in literature until mm-hmm. you were older. I'm I'm guessing there is some you know desire to reach young black nerdy girls. <laughs> but but who else are you sort of hoping will will get the book? And then what are you hoping people will do with it once they? Dive into this world.
2: Yeah. Definitely first and foremost, like for young people of color to kind of see themselves reflected like joyfully, but also in a real way that reflects like the complexity of, you know, growing up in this country and stuff. So so that's one thing. And I understand that could be a hard book to read in a classroom because like it's it's written how a lot of like my friends and like young people in my life talk. Mm. So in certain schools, there may be a discomfort around that. But I do think like my my dream would be for the book to be in a lot of classrooms because even for young white kids or for kids who aren't in urban spaces, who aren't seeing these things firsthand, I I really do think that like these issues are only getting worse and only affecting more people. And it's important to talk about it. Like, I think that down the line, when we are talking about gentrification, it's going to feel like talking about redlining. Like, I feel like we're, like, Mm. experiencing living history right now. And, like, that's not being taken Mm. super seriously, especially, like, within our education system sometimes, you know. And and not saying that, like, my book is necessarily, like, the one that should be on people's syllabus. But, like, I would like for a lot of schools in urban areas to be talking about urban issues because it's young people that are being affected on the front lines. And this is a really crazy era we're in. And those of us who are feeling it firsthand, like we know that, but I think time will tell that it's going to get bigger and more complicated. And it's very hard to figure out how to sustainably live in this like capitalist economy that we're in. And I hope that people can read this book and at least just start thinking about what it means to do any sort of place-based work or what it means to think outside of systems um, not in the way that the kids in the book do because their idea was bad. But by the like but by the end of the book. Just know? for the record, yes, for don't the make record, up No, I, I always I'm like, please don't I'm like, get to the end of the book, please. Like if you drop off in the middle, you might think it's still fine. It's not fine. Um, but but yeah, I hope that the book can just be Yeah, for anyone that's like ready to kind of talk to kids about different solutions to finding more sustainable way forward in our city. If people can walk away from the book kind of being ready to really talk about like change in their life, even like interpersonally, that would make me happy because I think there's a lot in the book about that, about the importance of like opening up dialogue and opening up yourself to having conversations about this. So so yeah, I'll just say i if anyone reads the book. <laughs> But, but yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: I think you're selling yourself short. I mean, obviously, it's a YA book, but anybody would benefit from reading this book. I was so moved by it and just felt myself like living with the characters after I finished it and thinking about them and their lives and painted such just like a visceral picture of, mm-hmm. of like you said, like a community that is so worth saving of something that is so beautiful and, and lovely and and worth protecting Yeah. regardless of the change that may be inevitable, that there's something in that that's worth protecting. So I think everybody should, everybody should get the book and read it.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I I appreciate it. Even if the takeaway is just people read the book and it kind of makes you be like, oh, I don't actually know my neighbors. And maybe the next time you see your neighbors, you do kind of wave and softly introduce yourself, like no matter where you live or what your neighborhood looks like that's also a great takeaway too. Like we don't have to be so isolated. And if you do feel that way in your community, like there are like small steps you can take to at least start building those connections with people around you. Um, I think we'll all be better for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy that I got to talk to you all though about it. It's just um, a really cool mission. And I love the idea of like Parents and families talking about these issues together and with the young people in their lives. And it's very cool, very cool to see.
0: Yeah. Well, it is our book club pick for sessions coming up in November. So. Get the book, read it, come to book club, slash book club. You can get more information and register there.
1: Thank you for joining us.
0: So grateful for you spending the time coming on talking about it. Really grateful for the book. I'm so excited to see what comes next, future work from you. Uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about whatever's next. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on.
2: Thank okay. you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for picking Bear Ghost Neighborhood for the book club. Yeah, that's so exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Val, what'd you think?
1: Can I say like how much I really, really enjoyed that conversation in a way that I just did not expect, right? Because, you know, we were talking about a fiction book, which we haven't done before. Yeah. And probably through the pandemic, my attention span for fiction just has shortened, right? And so to be able to sit with an author who I found incredibly thoughtful, incredibly connected to a sense of place and what is happening with the young folks around her was just really powerful. One of the first things that she talked about was the beauty of her neighborhood growing up and how she could go into different neighbors' houses. Everybody knew each other. Doors were unlocked and uh, it felt safe and people would look out for you. And I absolutely felt that in my neighborhood growing up, right? We were always... In the middle of the street, playing kickball yep. or mm-hmm. something else. You know, we knew everyone on our block. On you know yeah. the next couple of blocks, it was a time where you could go wander, and your parents weren't worried about you. Right, <laughs> you just yeah. go and you
0: could come home when the streetlights turn on. Literally, yep. like
1: on your bike, gone miles yep. away. You yep. know, and um, it was a joyful time, and you actually wanted to be out in the neighborhood with your friends exploring. Yeah. And, and that was cool. And so even her telling that story reminded me of my childhood and how I felt just really comfortable and safe yeah. doing that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had the same sort of experience. I mean, in my block, I think there were like 18 kids under the age of 12 or something. Wow. It's just like kids everywhere. and And yeah, there was definitely a sense that Every parent on the block was parenting all of the kids on the block. Mm -hmm. And there was a sense of comfort and a sense of place and a sense of safety in that.
1: So when I think about like my past neighborhood, the beauty of it, I felt comfortable. It felt like home. And then when I went away to college, I never moved back, right, to that particular neighborhood. So every time I would go back, it would continue to change, right? And we live very close walking distance to, um, What I still lovingly call Joe Robbie Stadium. I don't know what the name of the Miami Dolphin Stadium is (laughs) at this point. And once they built that, they put in some palm trees. Mm -hmm. They put in some business that we'd never had before, right? Mm -hmm. So you would see all of these changes. And, you know, because these changes were happening as I was growing into adulthood, I was aware that these changes weren't happening because, hey, we want to beautify this black community. It was like, hey we've built the stadium here
0: other people are going to come and it's going to reflect on our city and so now we and
1: need now to. we have to invest in in the community yeah. and that's really upsetting right because one of the things i hate about gentrification is there's the assumption that investment in a community is not necessary unless a certain population is moving into that community right. as if the people who live there already don't have the same value right
0: Certainly one of the most powerful things of the book for me reading it was just this, this incredibly beautiful, rich description of this neighborhood. The ways that she presented it as, like she said, something that is so worthy of being kept, something yeah. that is so worthy of loving and wanting is such a powerful reminder that there is value everywhere. That's right. People are valuable and right. people find ways to build community and create life. And I think the, the image of this neighborhood is so counter to the way certainly the media portrays neighborhoods that are gentrifying mm-hmm. right the 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 story that gets told is that gentrification is urban renewal the story gets told is that it is about mm. investing in underinvested places so that they can be quote better and mm-hmm. ignoring the value that actually exists in those places to start with
1: yeah it's complicated because of course i want some palm trees and some stores and yeah. some restaurants in the neighborhood who doesn't want that, right? right? And it's also a signal that, yeah, things are changing. And so one thing that I really valued in Jade's work was the way in which she was, A, able to have a really nuanced conversation around this topic. Yeah. And to create such a sense of empathy for all of her characters. And one thing that I just, I keep thinking about and it kind of makes me want to revisit mine is that she went back to her journals and yeah. was reading through what she felt like at that age and trying to really get connected. Now, I I mean, I kind of want to go back, but let's, <laughs> let's be real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably a lot of TLC lyrics, if, if I'm being <laughs> honest. That's probably what was in there.
0: Yeah, I am not 15. So maybe a 15-year-old reads it and feels like it's not, as authentic as it felt to me. But, I mean, my experience of getting ready to interview her, I had to remind myself that I was not interviewing Rhea, the narrator from the book. Like, she was so compelling Mm -hmm. and felt so authentic that I had to remind myself that this was a story.
1: And I think this is the power of stories. It made me, in an instance of gentrification, really want to listen to all of the stakeholders that are impacted by these actions, right? There has to be a, a scenario in which it's win-win for lots of stakeholders. I don't know those. I don't think we often look long enough to find those win-win situations.
0: Yeah. To me, I mean, that ties into our other theme from the season about the power of being in community. And certainly the charter school subplot of the book is representative of this, this idea that even well-intentioned people who are coming in to quote-unquote help. Mm -hmm. If they are not from the community, if they're not rooted in the community, if they are not in relationship in the community, are likely to go astray in those attempts. She doesn't sugarcoat the harm that is caused by gentrification, but there are little bits and pieces, little like nuggets of ways of some people who are showing up who are maybe doing it slightly better. Mm -hmm. She has this quote early on. She says, A few feet away, I noticed two white teenagers walking through the crowd. From what I can tell, they're the only non-black or brown people here. They smile and laugh as they walk around with food that they bought from the Ethiopian stand if only everyone who moved here would come to our events like this rather than just walk their dogs while avoiding eye contact with us and only waving at people who look like them
1: mm, yeah
0: change is inevitable but how do we show up and, you know it comes back mm-hmm. to this sort of school conversation is like how we mm-hmm. show up really really matters
1: one thing that you know I appreciate about Jade's work and I think fiction in general is that it makes a difficult topic accessible. And opens a door for us to talk about it in a way we may not have talked about it before. Totally. And it sparks curiosity, right? So if yeah. you have a young person who's reading this and wondering, hey, how do I show up as an ally? Or what do I need to know about gentrification? Or how do I, you know, get involved in my community. Like, the this, this story serves as a vehicle for action, I think, yeah. and and deepen curiosity around your own community. Yeah.
0: The kids in the book are so empowered, and, and, you know, initially, probably not so much for good. The fake gang is, like, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. But they walk through the world with a sense of their own power to make change. Mm-hmm. And they're sometimes disillusioned, and sometimes they feel like, you know, maybe they're not sure their change is going to happen. But I think that it, it's hard for me to imagine a 15 or 16-year-old reading this book and not coming away feeling like there was a role for them to play yeah. in their neighborhood, in their community, in, you know, fighting for change. And I think the, the more people we can kind of bring into the idea that we all have both the ability and also then the responsibility to make change, the better.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what another thing that makes Jade's work so genius is that I think that age group often feels like they can't do a whole lot, yeah. right? I'm not an adult so people aren't listening to me, right? We yeah. we have a bias against young people who stand up because we assume like you don't really know what you're talking about. And so to be able to provide young people examples of how they can show up and and start to develop, you know, our our last theme of the season that perseverance. Yes. It's just a really important element of the story.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's there's one other piece that that I've been sitting with that Certainly the way that, that Jade tells her story, there's a lot of harm that comes from gentrification. There is, you know, displacement. There is the loss of culture. There is conflict that can arrive. Also, you know, the research on the benefits of socioeconomically integrated neighborhoods is quite compelling.
2: Mm-hmm. Very
0: similar to the research about the benefits of integrated schools mm-hmm. and. Certainly I don't think integrated schools messages go gentrify neighborhoods because, right. because there's so much harm that can come from that. And yet there is a way in which sort of saying like you should go and enroll in your you know local global majority school could be read as a, a similar sort of ask.
1: Hmm. And
0: and I sometimes struggle a little bit to to reconcile those two things.
1: Yeah. It's really in and how you show up. Right. Yeah. If you show up and you demand this or you devalue this tradition that has been there forever or it becomes about only your kid then yeah it'll it'll feel like more traditional gentrification i right. don't have a space here you're pushing me out and i think gentrifier <laughs> like colonizer <Yeah>. is <laughs> is a persona right? right like if you come in to colonize and say this is now mine thank you for your service get off get away yeah then that's that's completely different energy and you'll be met with energy That is resistance.
0: The similarities to school feel very easy for me to make here because it's like, are you showing up with this idea that I know what a good neighborhood is? I know what a neighborhood's supposed to look like. And it's these, this, 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 and this. And so we need to start working right away on changing this neighborhood to make it match my vision of what a good neighborhood looks like. Very same experience to a colonizing you know, mentality when you show up in a school and say, well, I know what a good school looks like. I know what this school needs. It needs these things, these things. And we need to get rid of these things and change it in this way.
1: Yeah. I imagine when you come in and you might have the idea, because you're human, that this is what a good school um, should include. Definitely checking in with the community that's been there because it's building the coalition Mm -hmm. so that you make sure that all voices are heard and valued in that process.
0: We had Kfir Mordecai on the podcast a while back, who's a professor at at Pepperdine University, who studies gentrification. And and one of the things that I I always come back to from that conversation is he pointed out that changeover in who lives in a neighborhood is directly related to the wealth in that neighborhood. Like poverty Mm. increases neighborhood turnover. And we call it gentrification Mm. when the people who are coming in – look different than the population who's there. But mm-hmm. but gentrification in most circumstances doesn't actually increase the pace of turnover.
1: Interesting. Yeah, i have to go back and check out that episode. I have a lot to learn about gentrification. You know, yeah. I, have, I have lots of questions. I have lots of wonderings about, is there a way to, quote, revitalize a neighborhood and still maintain some of the beauty that was yeah. there already? I have wonderings about, what would it actually take to establish interracial communities and if people actually want them. I I think people do. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be here talking to you if I didn't think people did, right? Right. You know, I'm wondering about the barriers, yeah, whether they're internal or external and whether there's like that pressure that you often talk about from like a white person's experience to follow the set of unwritten white rules for yeah for your family, we have to do a better job of identifying the the barriers,
0: yeah, I don't think we have any great examples out there to point to to say this is how it should be done, but i but I agree, I think there's a lot of people who would like that, and my hope is that the more people who have more truly integrated schooling experiences, the better we can do that that those kids will grow up to you know kind of seek that out in a more helpful and and hopeful way
1: because it will be the norm for them, right because it would be abnormal if a white student sees no people of color around and they're like where where am i
0: (laughs) yeah yeah you know i mean you know to come back to the power of storytelling the story that that jade tells with there goes the neighborhood just brings the power of community and the power of relationships and the power of story to light in so many powerful ways and i'm so glad that we got to talk to her
1: oh my gosh i really enjoyed listening to her she's brilliant she will absolutely change the world. I have no doubt.
0: No doubt. Mm-hmm. And she'll She's be she'll mission. be totally low-key about it too. You're she like,
1: will. Oh. She'll be like, look, this is what we're gonna do. Revolution's coming. Do. <laughs> and it's in this cute little book.
0: Mutual aid. <laughs> Overthrow capitalism. There we <laughs> That's go. It. Yeah. Listeners, That's what did you think? What did you think of our conversation? If you read the book, what did you think of the book? Let us know. Send us a voice memo, speakpipe.com slash integrated schools, S P E A K P I P E dot com slash integrated schools. We would love to hear from you. You can go to our website, click on the send voicemail button on the side of the website, or just shoot us off an email podcast at integrated org. We'd love to hear how you're grappling with the idea of gentrification, with change, with neighborhoods, with your young adults in your lives. Are you reading books like these with them? And what conversations are they sparking? We'd love to hear from you.
1: And he's not kidding. Like we really would love to hear from you. So (laughs) like, click stop right away make your voice memo send it off we can't wait to hear that absolutely in addition we need you to share this episode and any other episode that feels good to you so take a listen share it with someone talk about it these things are done much better in community listen and share immediately
0: absolutely and then head over to patreon.com integrated schools and sign up to throw us a few bucks every month uh cost of a coffee the cost of 10 coffees whatever you've got whatever you can spare we would be grateful for your support this uh, podcast is a labor of love but it is not free to make so your support is what makes it possible and we're so grateful
1: we are very grateful to you as listeners and for your engagement thank you so much
0: absolutely val it is an honor to be in this with you as i try to know better and do better
1: until next time It was a cool game where <laughs> my brother was on a bicycle and I was running after him with a golf club and the goal would be to stick the golf club into the bicycle. Into the spokes. <laughs> so that happened one time. <laughs> and that's that a game was the, you can only play that, once. <laughs> that, that's the game you can only play once.